You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is Season 5, Episode 8. April is National Poetry Month. So what better way for us to observe the celebration than an episode on the art of poetry and by featuring the work of an exceptional modern-day poet? My guest today is Portland-based poet, teacher, and writer Amy Orazio. Amy received her MFA in Creative Writing at Otis College of Art and Design in Los Angeles, California. Her work has appeared in publications such as Bitterzoet, Gap Tooth, Pigeon Holes, and The Curator Magazine. In this episode, Amy and I discuss her latest collection of poems titled Quench, which explores themes of exile and coming home. I paired our conversation with musical interludes from Colorado recording artist VNE. You can find links to Amy's work and to the featured music in the show notes of this episode. Patrons of the podcast can join us for an additional interview segment with Amy as we talk on Wendell Berry, Mary Oliver, and the influence of nature within her writings. Be sure to listen to the end of this episode for details on how you can get a free copy of Amy's book and how you can be a part of the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. This is my conversation with poet and writer Amy Orazio. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics. I'm excited to talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's always a joy when I come across a fellow poet whose work really inspires me and really moves me. And when I came across your book, Quench, I knew that I wanted to reach out and have this conversation with you. So I'm excited to talk with you. Mm, That means a lot. Well, tell me some about your background. I know you're located in the Pacific Northwest, correct? I am. I'm in Portland, Oregon right now. Okay. I love Portland. Yes. But if you think of like the urban core of Portland with like Stumptown Coffee and Ace Hotel and like, you know, naked bicycle parades. That's not the part that I live in. (laughs) You live in the clothed bicycle parade part, right? Yes. I don't frequently see, you know, nude bicyclists, but (laughs) I do visit that part of town often. I actually live like a mile outside of city limits. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that part of Portland, I'm, I'm not always exposed to, but I'm there a lot for writing life or community life. So when I tell people I live in Portland, you know, I think Portland has its own special reputation Mm -hmm. and you get kind of an idea in your mind of like the kind of life I might live. That's probably not the kind of life that I'm living (laughs) because I'm also taking care of two toddlers. And so, yeah, I'm not just sipping lattes and fancy coffee shops all the time, (laughs) but I do enjoy my proximity to that part of Portland for sure. Yeah. Well, even in the midst of the busyness of this stage of life, you're also finding time to write some really incredible poems. Mm. And I'm curious to know, have you always been a writer or is this something that developed later in life? I would say that I have always been a writer and that it's always been something I've been drawn to since I was a little girl. I think I was comfortable identifying myself as a writer later on in life. I don't know if that's something you experience in your trajectory as an artist, but for a long time, you're like, it's not the main identity maybe that you present to people or that you feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Um, Saying like, when you, you know, in the classic kind of cocktail party conversation, someone says, what do you do? (laughs) And now I'm kind of at a place now where I say, I'm a writer with full confidence. So I think that means something, right? It does. That threshold wasn't crossed until later on in life because I was, um, I went to Bible college for my undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. And then I was a social worker for a little while and um, didn't really start taking poetry seriously 
until, or even consider poetry as a career or um, a serious passion, even until my late twenties. Well, is Quench your first book that you've published then? It is. It is. And it came out right when I, as I was starting to have children. So um, it's been a very particular kind of hustle season for me. But at the same time, I'm so glad it came out when it did, because otherwise I think it'd be easy to compartmentalize that part of my life in the middle of motherhood. But it is my first full collection that's been published. Well, I'm interested to know some of the inspiration behind this because Quench is separated into four different sections. The first one is desert. Uh, the second one is city. And then you move on to harbor and then headwater. Tell me a little of what that means. So the book, I actually started writing it in Los Angeles. I was in Los Angeles for graduate school. And I was really um, interrogating the subject of exile. I was just fascinated and inspired by the city itself. Um, The fact that everybody in the city felt like they were self-exiled for the most part. They were, um, you know, all looking to um, pursue a dream or nobody in Los Angeles is really from Los Angeles, right? (laughs) So there's that feeling in the air. The city was also experiencing a pretty profound drought while I was there. And so that inspired this idea of desert and that was kind of melting in with, I guess, an interrogation or fascination with the Israelites in the Bible too, and their experience of exile. I was looking at Mark Chagall paintings a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Inspiration is funny in that way, where you, you're pulling from a number of different maybe wells inside of you or interests inside of you, and then maybe one piece of art comes from those layers. But I was, I thought the book was going to be about exile when I started, and about being in the middle of a desert and of course wanted the reader to didn't want to be so didactic that I was you know talking about a desert season which we hear about a lot I think in the church but you know across the board um, hoping that I left enough space within that concept to allow the reader to pull from it what they needed and so that's where the book started out and I actually had finished a complete manuscript about exile And the book took a little bit of a turn when I moved back to the Pacific Northwest with my husband. And we moved to Portland, where he's originally from. I'm from the Northwest originally as well. And that circle of falling in love and finding a home with my husband and being back to the land that speaks to me. I loved Los Angeles. So when I talk about the book and think about it, I want to be careful not to... um, you know, insinuate that Los Angeles is not also a land that's completely beautiful and inspiring. But there's something about, I think, the land where you have deep, deep roots, where you feel God in a special way. And that's Mm -hmm. certainly the case for me. So I wrote the last section of the book really from a place of feeling like I had found a new home and I had found a deep rest by the river. So as I looked at the original manuscript that I had written and then added the last section, I saw this thread and this kind of trajectory of coming home. And so that's where I feel the book has landed and that it's really about, at first it was about exile, but now it's really about coming home. Well, you mentioned that the book came out right around the time that you became a mother. Mm. And so I'm curious how that transition in life has also impacted your writing process. I've actually been thinking about that this week in particular. I have had a little bit of a busy week. I had a reading at PSU 
in the middle of taking care of kids and other life things going on. And in general, my life is really, the majority of my life is taking care of kids and being a full-time mother. But certain weeks like this, I have, I'm, you know, lucky enough to do a podcast interview or I have a reading or I have something specific that I'm trying to write. I also was trying to write an essay this week and kind of, I guess, forcing myself to see my children as adding to the depth of my work, even though sometimes they feel like a distraction from my work. And that's a little bit of an abrasive way to put it, but I'm sure other artists that might be parents can relate to that feeling. Yeah. I think as an artist, sometimes your impulse is just to shut yourself in your room and just create, create, create. But I have been thinking a lot of my, about my children in the same way as like other seasons of life that impacted my work like five years down the road that I pulled from. Like I mentioned, there's these different wells inside of yourself that you're pulling from and that add a certain amount of depth to your work. And so I'm curious what that will add to my work later on. I haven't actually written a lot from this place of motherhood, but it's certainly a deeper well and a deeper love than I'm, I've almost ever known, you know, outside of my relationship with God. So I can't imagine how well that will transform and add to my writing. But I'm, I'm not always so self-actualized that I think of it like that. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like in the middle of a wonderful thought and one of my children start screaming and I'm like, ah, this is hard. But um, yeah, I've, I really genuinely feel it's like God's design that my book came out right at this time. As I mentioned earlier, it's just uh, has been a perfect push for me when I think it's easy for mothers in particular not to get political but I think it's you know there's a certain um, burden on mothers that we're still dealing with of the burden of caretaking and trying to pursue passions can sometimes even if it's something that you know you signed up for and you feel good about which is certainly the case you know with our family I want it to be a full-time mother but it still I think is easy to just make that your entire identity so having a book come out this time is perfect because it forces me to to hold both at once even though there's a tension there sometimes there can be a tension between the everyday life and the place of inspiration that I think all artists encounter, you know, no matter what Absolutely. our everyday life entails. But I think in my own journey, one of the beautiful things that I've had to learn to do is how to find creative sanctuary in the midst of the busyness yeah. and how to find an inner solitude in the midst of exterior chaos. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because our temperament and the craft really does require some measure of solitude. It really does require a measure of getting away from the noise of, of the everyday. But at the same time, there's a beauty in finding that place in the midst of it. And a lot of times I've discovered that the things that I found to be distractions Sometimes they're actually hiding the inspiration that I was looking for if, if we just change our perspective a bit. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I love these conversations with other artists, truly, <laughs> because these are the things that are rattling around in my head and I'm processing, and so it's so fun to hear it come out of another face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm really curious to know some about your relationship to words, because as a poet and as a wordsmith, this is the tool of your trade. This, you know, words are what you work with. And if you don't mind, I actually want to read one of my favorite all-time quotes and get your thoughts on it. How about we do that? It sounds great. Are you familiar with Thomas Merton? 
I am. Of course you're familiar with Thomas Merton. <laughs> so in his book, Bread in the Wilderness, mm-hmm. I want to read this to you and see how it hits you, all right? Okay. He says, The Psalms are poems, and poems have a meaning, although the poet has no obligation to make his meaning immediately clear to anyone who does not want to make an effort to discover it. But to say that poems have meaning is not to say that they must necessarily convey practical information or an explicit message. In poetry, words are charged with meaning in a far different way than are the words in a piece of scientific prose. The words of a poem are not merely the signs of concepts, they are also rich and effective in spiritual associations. And I love this, he says, the poet uses words not merely to make declarations, statements of fact. That's usually the last thing that concerns him. He seeks above all to put words together in such a way that they exercise a mysterious and vital reactivity among themselves. Isn't that beautiful? Ugh, I could cry. (laughs) You know, and then he ends and says, and so release their secret content of associations to produce in the reader an experience that enriches the depths of his spirit in a manner quite unique. Oh my goodness. Say it again for the people in the back, Mr. Merton. I mean, this is, I need to get this tattooed on my body. Yes, absolutely. Honestly, that's something that I'm constantly returning to as a poet. Especially, I think, um, I've heard you talk a little bit, or maybe I read something you wrote about the church being more familiar with a linear art and a Mm -hmm. linear, um, I guess, path to -hmm. spirituality. And uh, it's not just in the church. I think oftentimes, in general, people will read my poems or read poetry in general, and they're trying to extract meaning from it. And on one hand, I have a lot of grace and understanding for that. And I feel happy to be a bridge for people to poetry in general, because I wasn't exposed to a lot of poetry growing up. So I understand it's it's an art form because it can be abstract. That needs exposure to grow. It needs like little seeds in your soil to really feel like you have an access or an on-ramp to it. On the other hand, I feel incredibly frustrated (laughs) sometimes at the insistence on meaning, on a linear concept coming out of poetry, and um, maybe a lack of willingness to just sit with mystery in general. I feel like I'm sometimes swimming upstream with that as a poet. So, yeah, I hold both of those in in my hands. I do feel a certain amount of excitement around, again, like helping expose people to poetry and understand it on a deeper level and enjoy it and sit with it. And on the other hand, I feel like, how is this going to sit with a large population? Like, how is my work ever going to find its audience, really? So... I love what you said that some people have a lack of willingness to sit with mystery. Mm -hmm. And I think that what your work in particular does and what it did with me when I read it is that it invited me to sit with mystery. Mm -hmm. When I read your poetry, the thing that I enjoy about it is that it calls me into an experience. It allows me into a certain frame. And so it's not so much if you ask me what your poems are about, I probably couldn't tell you. Mm 
I can't tell you what my own poems are about sometimes. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and some, that may sound like a cop-out, but it's not. But there is this willingness to sit with mystery that is the call of the poet to invite others outside of that linear frame of mind and to sit with something that's much bigger than we can get our heads around. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like that runs, I don't know about you, but I, f- I feel like it runs completely parallel to my faith as well and mm-hmm. my f- faith journey. Absolutely. And like this willingness to sit with the Spirit and let the Spirit hover. I'm curious to know some about your process of going from an idea to a completed poem. Mm -hmm. And something that I talk to a lot of people about, and actually I just, on our artist profile series, I just did a profile on the Catholic nun, Corita Kent. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was a visual artist inspired by Andy Warhol during the 1960s. (laughs) But she had these 10 rules that her art students were to follow. And one of her rules was the process of creating and the process of editing are two different processes. Mm-hmm. And she encouraged you to have your creative process, but then to come back and to edit from a different state of mind. But I'm curious what your process is and how the process of editing your poems impacts what you create. Mm, I, yeah, I can't wait to listen to that episode now. Um, I've never heard of that woman, but I completely agree with her as well. I think the process of creating and editing are equally as creative and interesting and important components of creating something. I feel like in terms of creating my process around initially creating, I feel like my strongest work is not necessarily um, conceptual. Like I have, it comes from more of a gut place, I would say, or uh, maybe a phrase that's rolling around in my head or an image. It's not Mm -hmm. necessarily, like, I think I would be a terrible commissioned artist. Like Mm -hmm. if someone was like, write a poem for this wedding or something like that. I don't know if that's (laughs) how it works, um, you know, with your poetry or with music. If Mm -hmm. you're excited, it could be a fun creative constraint, but I can't get very excited about, you know, someone sitting down and saying, write a poem about the mountains. Like that's not necessarily how it works for me. So the process of creating is usually me being inspired by a certain phrase that I can't turn a phrase I can't get out of my head or an image that feels outside the box that I want to kind of flush out a little more. And then editing for me is an entirely different process. And I usually need to let the poem breathe for a little bit Mm -hmm. and return back to it. And I've found that that has affected and refined my work more than than anything else. And a lot of this I, I learned from professors and other poets that I sat with and workshopping. But this willingness to kind of kill my darlings, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a Faulkner quote. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's probably mm-hmm. one of those quotes that is attributed to a lot of different writers. But right, right. this idea that even something that's very precious to you, you have to be willing to cut it if it's not serving the piece. Absolutely. And when a really pivotal moment for me was realizing that poems don't need a lot of fancy adjectives or Mm. really a lot of adjectives at all to be powerful. In fact, sometimes that bogs the poem down. And so that was a huge part of my process. I came in, I'm really good at flowery language. I'm a good writer in general, but poetry was an entirely different animal where I had to um, get really spare, I think, in order for my work to get good at all. Yeah. So I had to learn how to... pull adjectives. I also feel like 
I think this is an impulse in general. I don't know if it's like Western culture impulse or across the board, but I think an impulse is to try to create a lot of resolve around anything that you're mm-hmm. creating. I feel like especially in the church, we want resolve and we want to learn lessons. And I don't know, I I loved growing up in the church. Like I loved it. I was never that child that was like, I don't want to go to church. I loved <laughs> learning about Jesus and just being around other people that love Jesus. But one thing I can observe from a life of growing up in the church is I have sat under a lot of like three-point sermons (laughs) (laughs) and there is a lot of an insistence in the church of like pulling lessons from everything. So I think that that bleeds into anything that we're creating generally as Christian artists is we want to present a lesson and we want to present resolve. And I had to fight against that. And I still do sometimes, honestly. I find myself wanting to wrap everything up nicely and make the reader feel really good about what I've written. And um, a really powerful process of editing for me is to challenge. If I feel like there's just consistent resolve and lessons and everything's very didactic in my poems and um, rolling around to something really sweet and nice, I have to sit with that and challenge that. And I think learning how to do that has improved my work tremendously. It goes back to having a willingness to sit with mystery, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah, you're right. And sometimes even though I feel like that's a really deep part of who I am, that I enjoy mystery, I feel like it's still something that isn't always second nature, I think, because of, again, the culture that we live in or just, yeah, how comfortable we might be with with resolve. Yeah. Well, at the beginning of our conversation, you told me about living in the Pacific Northwest and some about being in Portland. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious to know how spaces and how the land where you live, how does your environment impact the art that you're making? Tremendously. And I think I can credit my father to this ability to to feel God in the land and in spaces. Uh, we grew up, I think I mentioned I grew up in a working class family in a really rural community um, at the foot of the Cascade Mountains, uh, east of Seattle. And we lived next to a river. And for our family, that was sacred space. We would you know, my dad would put his earbuds in. He's an introvert. So he wasn't, it wasn't like he was conversing with the family as we were walking. He'd put his earbuds in. But there's this idea of that's your, um, that's your space. And we'd walk down to the river and um, assume that God was hovering over the waters, assumed as we looked at the mountains that there was something majestic and holy about God and assume that um, God was ready to meet us there. And so I think that's present in my work and something I'll never be able to shake, (laughs) this idea that for me, God is so represented in the Pacific Northwest for those reasons, because of how I grew up. I imagine someone that grows up in other regions and and has such positive um, associations with their land and where they probably have really deep roots, that it could be the same same for them, depending on where they're from. For me, it's the Pacific Northwest, and no one's ever going to be able to change my mind about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But obviously I've experienced God all over the world and and feel inspiration all over the world as well. And those two are one and the same, right? Experiencing God and feeling inspiration. I have one more question that I want to ask you. Earlier, you talked about this tension between writing from the place of mystery and then also connecting with an audience. Mm -hmm. 
I think that that's a tension that so many artists and so many poets, especially, and so many musicians across the board feel. But I think that particularly in communities of faith, that's a real concern. You know, and I think navigating that tension between abstract work or work that's not linear or work that's not immediately accessible and then also connecting with an audience through your work because we want to connect with an audience we want people to come with us on this journey that we're offering but i'm curious to know how the consideration for the reader impacts what you write is there a consideration for the reader or does that come later i think i can't consider the reader when i'm writing I can't, it will muddle up my work too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like I probably could write more crowd pleasers, as I call them. And that could be, you know, even like a fun constraint at some point. But I can't consider the reader or I'm not going to produce anything worthwhile. It's got to mm-hmm. come from my gut and my own wells of inspiration. Otherwise, yeah. right? Like it's it's right. going to be flimsy work. Yeah. I would be curious to hear from other artists who might be listening to this podcast how much um, they care about approval. I I wish that I was the kind of artist who was just like, screw the world. <laughs> I'm in my own spot and people can deal with whatever. I'm an oldest child. I, I love connecting with people. I'm not divorced from that impulse to want to please people. And so it's, again, to keep using that word, it's a tension I'm constantly holding inside of myself. And this was, I'm going to be vulnerable here. It was, that was a hard part for me of releasing this book was that I knew that so many people that I loved would read it and not know how to respond to it. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to write a book that everyone is like, oh my goodness, this connects to me. I had this exact same experience and isn't this beautiful, flowery, wonderful language and lesson, same lesson I wanted to learn. (laughs) There is a huge part of me that would love that experience. And that might happen sometime. You never know what my trajectory will be as a writer in general. But it was extremely vulnerable for me to release this book, especially since so much of my, I have um, honored to have community with writers and the community with friends that don't um, share the same faith practice that I do. But because I grew up in the church and went to Bible college, a huge part of my life and my community is is faith-based. And I was anticipating that, again, a lot of people that I love and know would be so kind as to support me and buy the book and pick it up, but then not know how to respond to it. And I have sat with that, just the crickets. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think it's just people don't always know how to respond to to work like poetry. So yeah. yeah, that's vulnerable. I really wish I could say, oh, I don't care. Yeah. Well, to be honest, though, the nature of your work is what drew me to it. Mm. And it was because it had an authenticity to it. And it was because it went ahead of the pack, so to speak, and that it wasn't catering to what's already known or already discovered. Mm-hmm. It had the spirit of the pioneer on it when I read it. And I think that sometimes that's a frightening and a lonely path, but it's also the call of the artist. Our job is to go into the unknown and create space for others to come along with us. And I think that your work does that. A lot of times the work of the poet and the work of very innovative artists is that it feels lonely because you're looking ahead to something that hasn't been explored yet. And it takes bravery and courage to go into that place where it may not be 
immediate. It may not be immediately understood, but if you're faithful to what's inside of you, pretty soon you'll turn around and you'll see that you've given space for a lot of other people to express things that they needed to express. And I think your work does that. Would you be willing to recite one of your poems for us? I would be honored. One of my favorites is called Veil, and I wrote it towards, even though it's in the beginning of my book, I wrote it towards the end of the process of writing this book. Um, So I'll read that for you now. Veil. A wild choice to suspend between two hours, liquid as a veil. The feeling that comes when you can't remember if someone you know is dead or alive. Not the missing, but the forgetting, the slipping. Was this a choice? I blink and dusk is gone. Open my eyes to the moment right before the fire hits the match. The problem isn't the hour I was born into, it's the hour I'm missing out on. The problem is the thirst. I don't know how to learn to drink. I just have to drink. The God who woke me up has many voices. They blend like water. A choice to feel the feeling of being swallowed up in a child's laughter. Not the sound, but the light of it. Honeyed. As it pours over me, I hear it has never been a problem. The fire comes from the scratch. I love it. Well, Amy, I'm a new fan of your work, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us on Makers and Mystics. Oh, it means so much. I I gleaned a lot from this conversation. Thank you. And as always, thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, we're going to give you a simple way to get a free copy of Amy's book. So here's what you do. Go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And then leave us a review. Tell us how the podcast has impacted your creative or spiritual journey. Once you've done this, send us an email with the copy of your review to info at makersandmystics.com. Be sure to include a mailing address for us, and we'll get the copy of Amy's book to you as soon as possible. Now, this is an important part of the offer. You only have until the next interview episode to take us up on the offer. After that, it goes away. So don't hesitate. Go to iTunes today, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and then email us a copy of the review with your address, and we'll send you a copy of Amy's book. Our email address again is info at makersandmystics.com. And lastly, I want to say thank you to all of the patrons who are supporting the podcast monthly. You are making these conversations possible. And if you aren't currently part of the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective, I want to encourage you to sign up today at makersandmystics.com or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. You'd be surprised at how much even $1 per month contributes to making a way for these conversations on art and faith to happen. So thanks to everyone who's supporting us, and we'll see you again next week with another Artist Profile episode.